Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 23rd episode of the Truth Island podcast. Before the 20th century, when people were fortunate enough to receive a small break from the toil of their brow, there remained only one form of recreation in which a person could enjoy in the comfort of their own home. This allowed them to feel something, embark upon a mental adventure, learn something new, or perhaps challenge some of the ideas that lay dormant in their mind. This exercise was called reading, particularly the reading of books. Well into the 21st century, books have all but disappeared from our modern purview. If you've ever traveled via public transportation, you'll probably have noticed that books have now become replaced with cell phones and other electronic forms of distraction. Well, people are still reading. They're just doing it with their Kindle or tablet, you might argue. But are they really? The Pew Research Center cites that the average person reads 12 books a year. That is one book a month. However, one key shortcoming of the study is that the word average means that some of us might be reading quite a bit, while others are reading nothing at all, which might give us the false impression that we're all on the same page. The quality of what we are reading might also matter as well. For example, is an article that was written two weeks ago at a sixth grade reading level quibbling about current events the same as reading passages from Tolstoy? The transition also from digital print to hard print gives us, the reader, far more opportunities to become distracted and fiddle around with the music, watch some of the videos in between chapters, and perhaps not fully lose ourselves in the world that is committed to the written page. Joining me to help make sense of this transition is Gabby. Gabby, how are you feeling riding the subways these days? You know, to your point, it's funny, you know, when you look around, actually, you're typically on your phone yourself, but when you look up and you kind of see everyone, their heads are down, it's a little shocking when you take into consideration that back then you were either reading a newspaper or chatting up the person sitting next to you. So it's a really unique place that we're in, and technologically, I mean, we are definitely in a really great place and we're making great advancements, but I think in some form, we've lost that kind of magic that books had brought with, you know, those stories or obtaining information that you might not have gotten otherwise. I've had played times where I read certain books and even if they're in the form of fiction versus nonfiction, you read a specific line and it just so happens to hit you at the exact point that you need. So it's not the same way that we're obtaining information nowadays. Uh, like you would in a Google search or reading a certain article, um, it might not capture that same amount of power. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I, I like what you said about we were kind of forced to have conversation and sort of engage with more print uh, media. You know, I remember when I had just turned 21. Now, this was kind of going out of style, but it still existed. You would sometimes find newspapers on on like the bar. Like if you went to a bar, you'd actually find like old newspapers and the sports page and all this other stuff. And I feel like that kind of invited some sort of socialness like hey did you check out what's going on over here whereas now everyone just kind of sits down and their head is immediately buried in their phone i don't know if they're necessarily engaging with like the material in the in the same kind of social spirit that perhaps they once did like have okay for example have you ever been on a subway and like something funny happens and you immediately make eye contact with the people around you and for some reason like a little giggle comes out or like a smirk and you immediately feel that connectedness and like 
more of a security or safety feeling. Uh, if you didn't have that moment of connectedness, which again, you probably had when you did have that, you know, hey, did you see what's in the paper? Or did you read that? Especially as New Yorkers, we're like really tied to one another and we've quote unquote got each other's backs. Over time, we're starting to lose that sense of connectedness and normal human connection that you would normally have otherwise. Yes, I remember even when I used to go back to work. Do you remember uh, AM New York, those free newspapers they used to yeah, give out? Yeah, I actually used to love those because it was always giving you something to do in the city. Yeah, they, they used to get, but there was also a very social component behind that because the, they usually hired these very animated uh, guys and gals to give out those papers. You would, everyone would see the headline, you'd be able to turn to the person next to you and be like, oh man, uh, you know, look what the mayor's up to now. And I think that all of that's lost. Now, I'm sure the environmentalists are like, oh, thank goodness they're not wasting all that paper on that uh, god-awful uh, AM New York. But at the same time, I, I feel like something's lost by not having that print medium available. Yeah, I can completely agree. Um, I, I used to work in the Flatiron District, and when I would walk across you know, Union Square where the market would be, they would always be handing them out. And again, it's just another form of connectivity, a, a real true form of connectivity, because when you think of connectivity in general nowadays, we are in a sense more connected, but it's very inauthentic or it's just, uh, you know, talking amongst a screen or over a phone is very different from like chatting up in person and seeing someone's expression and like feeling their energy in the conversation. So I can completely agree with it's, it's, I, I think we're all looking forward to going back to work and having those you know, one -on -one <laughs> conversations. Yeah, it's also one thing I, I saw someone reading um, uh, The Great Gatsby um, on the subway recently, but this is a really rare sighting to see anyone reading a book, but I immediately, I didn't want to bother the guy, he looked engrossed in the book, but I was like, hey, that's a great book, and he was like, oh, thank you, I'm enjoying it so much, and I feel like when we are in the seclusion of our phones, those types of connections just don't happen anymore and they can't happen anymore. Yeah, I've had the same experience happen. And I mean, I've also been on the other end of seeing someone actually reading a book and just because of the nature of the world that we live in, feeling a little intimidated to actually go up to them and say like, hey, I really like the book you're reading or like I saw it on a shelf and I'd love to know your input on it or like, is it really as great as the Times is making it out to be? But stemming off the what you were saying about the classics, I think that's a whole other great thing to discuss as well is that list of original authors that we were all doing reports on and like learning the morals of code, if you will, in certain ways. A lot of you, it's not even coming up in school anymore. I mean, a lot of the classics I haven't read myself and it's a kind of a dying art. Yes, yes. I, I think that you know, uh, working in education myself, I noticed that there's a huge shift away from literature and more on articles, more on uh, informational text that you can extract data from or, 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 or science-based stuff. And that stuff is important, you know, and, that, and the argument that the educators will make is like, well, this is the type of reading material that they'll use in the labor force, or that's gonna help them get a job. Okay, fair enough. But at the same time, I feel like our culture is starving because we're, we've completely abandoned the, this, this canon of text that has kept us afloat for so long. Yeah, I agree. I actually used to be an educator myself. So, um, I mean, I was teaching younger, like, younger grades, so we weren't, weren't necessarily reading you know, <laughs> these big complex novels. But what I was finding a lot was that my younger students were actually not even being introduced to reading as much as I had as a kid. 
Wow. I remember, I mean, obviously they were encouraged to read and we had English was a subject that was taught. um, But I I don't know. I just, it felt like such a different generation from when I grew up. Like when I grew up, I saw the movie Matilda and was like convinced if I read enough books, I would get magic powers like her. And I was like (laughs) on a mission. And like, luckily it worked out because I fell in love with reading. And obviously, sadly, the powers didn't come, but I still, I still enjoy reading. I I think you you might have some special power. You may not know (laughs) it. The power of great conversation is a power that uh, is, is much needed right now. Even though I worked with older kids mostly, um, I do feel the same thing. And I also think that we have we both live in New York city. We have like what three Barnes and Nobles left. Like they've all shut down. They've all shut down. And I think that what happened when you had physical books is that it allowed you to visit a Barnes and Noble and you might stumble across a book that you weren't looking for in the first place. And I think right off that, right off the bat, that's expanding your mind because you could be like, oh, wow, this looks interesting. I never would have searched for this on my own accord, but now I am learning about uh, the ancient Romans just because I found this this interesting book on it. Whereas now all of the information that we're getting and all the reading materials we're getting is like heavily curated by ourselves. If we're not not, uh, Google searching for it, we don't find it. Yeah. And I guess it's the downfall of the algorithms of social media is that they are curating content that's very specific to your biased view or your interest versus, you know, introducing something that, I mean, it's not going to produce a sale. And for that, that doesn't work with the algorithm. So, but I do, I have had the experience of going into a Barnes and Noble and whether it's an actual book or a magazine, or even like they have their writing materials and things of that nature. You go in, you don't want to judge a book by a cover, but it happens. You get excited <laughs> and then you bur- like purchase a book that was co- the complete opposite of what you wanted. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was also a community of sorts because you'd walk in the Barnes and Nobles and you would see all of these teens and young adults just sprawled out in the in the halls, like in between the bookshelves, just reading. And that sparked conversation like, oh, my, you're into anime, too. Let's 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 read this graphic novel together. Or um, it, it was just a place where you could discover yourself and also discover perhaps like minded people who were thinking the same exact thing as you. And I feel like something is lost by by the heavily curated nature of, of the way we obtain information. Agreed. I actually, uh, so I grew up in the suburbs and I never got to experience, well, I mean, sometimes, but I usually never got to experience that when you, when you stumble upon, you know, a row of kids that are sitting, whatever, either they're studying or they're like going over whatever book they're reading. I never saw that until moving to New York City and like, I mean, the place was mobbed and it was such a great feeling to be like, oh my God, I'm not the only one who still reads. Like, here. <laughs> so silly, but I mean, it was so quiet in the suburbs that it was just a handful of people. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I think that the, uh, the Union Square Barnes Noble is probably one of the few that, that remains that kind of can experience that to some degree, but I think it's tragic that to get to get there, you would have to live in that neighborhood or you'd have to be old enough to travel on the subway for two hours. And that's probably out of the, uh, the ability of most people. Like I, I was lucky that I had a Barnes and Noble pretty close to where I lived. So it was just a part of my, Oh, okay. I'll be out for like 20 minutes. Let me walk to the Barnes and Noble. But I think once you put like a two hour train ride to go to one Barnes and Noble in the city, it kind of just kills that, that, that whole momentum of, of, of gathering a, a community of readers together. Yeah. And there isn't, 
from what I know, there aren't that many booksellers left anyway, other than the rise of Amazon books, they're more brick and mortar stores, which is also sad. I mean, you could buy them in airports, but it's obviously not the quite, quite the same experience as you would when you go to Barnes and Noble, but even like going to a library, I feel like that, ex that whole experience has changed as well. It's just, it's very different. And I mean, there are some really great things like you can now rent eBooks, which is wonderful for people who don't, they physically can't get to a library or quite honestly, they can't afford to pay for a book, which if we're being honest, they, they can be pretty expensive sometimes. Yeah, they can. Covers, like $20, $25. But um, yeah, the only downfall with the library is like you obviously have to wait. And sometimes that wait can be months on end if you're even lucky to get it. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and I know with COVID, most of the libraries are still closed right now. Yeah. So if it wasn't for PDF files and eBooks and things of that sort, then I, I would definitely have a lot less to read right now. So th there, are there are virtues in, in the electronic medium. But I think with the library, it's like, I, I remember when I was little, you're always encouraged to be quiet in a library. Like, I think that was like one of the things yeah. I learned. So it, it's kind of harder to, to, to sort of like create those relationships because you're, you're, you don't want to be rude and disturb people. Whereas I feel like a bookstore allowed you to be more social because you could read in a bookstore, but it's not necessarily like a quiet space. So. Yeah. And they had um, a lot of events that I found actually nurture those conversations. So they'd have an author come in I mean, I don't know if libraries did that too. In my neighborhood, we didn't really have that. But uh, I, in, especially in the Union Square, Barnes & Noble, I've seen it multiple times where even accidentally I go in there and you go up to the floor that has like the coffee shop and they have a, an author there explaining their book. And it's like a packed room, packed with people who want to meet the author and like sign the book. And there are these groups who break out after and they're all talking, discussing the book. Oh, I like this one. You should, I recommend this one. It's similar. Like, and then it's just this chain reaction. You're, you're talking about a similar idea, but then it allows for you to have these deeper conversations about maybe different ideas, the book itself, or a whole nother topic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, I think we touched upon very nicely, like how, how, how I think that the digital way of, of, of getting information is basically curated to our taste and curated to what we want to find out and not necessarily what the world has to offer. And I think that's, that's a huge loss because, um, and that's even, even in the form of like Netflix, for example, everything there is curated to what you like already. And you sort of lose this, this feeling of walking into a blockbuster and being like, oh, wow, look at this hidden gem over here. This looks interesting. So I, I think that it's definitely limiting our interest and making us a lot more tunnel vision, which, which can be positive because we become experts, but I think it's negative because we're becoming overly specialized and not really yeah. <laughs> getting a broader sense of what's going on in the world. Yeah. So thinking about this, this idea of the mediums, we have this idea that our patience and our level of focus might be shifting as we interact with, with these new mediums of, of, of reading. So I, I have this feeling, Gabby, and I, I want you to run with me here. I have this feeling that people's attention spans are starting to disappear as a result of the way that we're consuming information. I, I, I have this feeling that when we kind of had to lock ourselves into a book, that was a commitment. And we, we could really lose ourselves for a few hours. And that, that's, that not only was a nice, pleasurable mental experience, 
but it also trained us to be very disciplined and to be very focused in the way that we interact information. What are you, what are your thoughts? I think that can somewhat be argued, but for the most part, I think it's, we are definitely, especially as New Yorkers, we increasingly are having a lower threshold of patience. So, and also if we're really taking into context, everything, I think how it links up with that is we almost have an experience of like FOMO, like fear of missing out. So when we detach from social media or all these things that are so demanding on our lives, it almost makes us feel like, yeah, we're jumping into a story, which is bringing us to another world, but it's making us neglect our existing world. And because of that, maybe in our minds, we're thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to get the next new job. Then I'm not going to, you know, Hmm. move forward in life. I'm going to miss out on the cool party. I'm going to do, you know, miss out on all these things, but it could be argued that you losing yourself in a book maybe is actually the better experience than you would have going to a nightclub or, you know, whatever it is going on that trip or looking at whoever's doing the next big thing. Yes. Yeah. That's a fantastic point that we're, we're constantly worried that we're missing out on something better. And I think that it even applies directly to reading because I, I read this blog and it was very depressing that like the average person <laughs> will spend maybe like 30 seconds reading an article before they give up on it. Like, which is to me, like extreme, like even if it's a really short article, they'll spend like 30 seconds and then they'll move on to something else, which means that in the back of their mind, they're reading this article and maybe that article has exactly what they need. Like maybe they're reading an article about how can I salvage my relationship with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? It has exactly the fruit that you need to eat right now. But in their head, they're just like, "Uh, there's got to be another video or there's got to be something more interesting. And they sacrifice like the gems and rubies right before them in exchange for something else, which may not be as good. That's an interesting point. I actually am guilty of doing that sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're being honest, like, but I do think at some level, it's actually forcing us as human beings to create better content. So if you're not capturing your audience within those 30 seconds, however many lines it is, that's also maybe, yes, it could be that we're losing our patience and our focus, but maybe it's also that we need to reevaluate how we're actually, you know, creating content and the words we're using. And if we're actually doing a good job of capturing our audience in a way that keeps them on the page for the two minutes that it takes to read something versus going to a YouTube video. You know, Gabby, you actually make a a good point here. I might push back a a little bit here because (laughs) I I think that, yes, you want to develop your skills as a writer and write sentences that are appealing and write in a way that most people understand. I'm with you on that. But I'm wondering if that might also create some more darker urges to make your article more sensational or make it more riskier or, or more exciting. So I think that we might be deviating away from the truth a bit because we want to create like stunning headlines, like surprises and shocks and all of this excitement. And I think that, yes, you should cultivate yourself as an interesting writer, but at the same time, if you have some very hard truths to bestow upon people, should you necessarily alter your message so that you're more attractive? That's a good point. Okay, you got me stumped. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, and now when I think about it, it's, you know, I, if we're talking about like fluffing things, right? So I think 
now our our generation that's coming up we're seeing a lot of books that have like a lot more curse words in it and i think that's because it's that's a way of fluffing things up like yeah i'm gonna drop the f-bomb like i need to read that now that sounds interesting so hmm. it's kind of it's, it's displaying the same exact message <laughs> no it, it makes absolutely perfect sense my only question is is that the people and and there was this I I forgot who said this it might have been uh, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld who said this but I, I could be wrong on that he said that comedians sometimes put curse words into their act because they don't have confidence that their act is funny enough so a lot of comedians will just throw in as many curse words because they actually don't believe that the the jokes they're saying or the material that they're offering is that funny and I'm wondering if the same thing is happening with content producers today is that they actually don't believe in the quality of their message and they want to put all these like slang words and curse words to kind of make it look like uh, the prettiest girl at the ball <laughs> I mean, that's a little harsh, but it's not entirely untrue. I think it's, I mean, it's a great marketing tactic because I've bought those books. So they're sitting on my shelf. So I, there is some truth to it. Yeah. I don't know if it's, again, if it's, if you in, injecting a curse word or any type of slang into a book is actually hitting, hit, making the point even more clear, or if, again, it's just a marketing tactic. Yeah. I mean, either it could be argued on either side. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that it, it is a balance because if I'm writing in this extremely like esoteric, really like way that that 90% of people don't understand, I'm not helping anybody. People are just walking past my book or they're walking past my blog and they're like, yeah, this is this, this is hieroglyphics to me. I don't understand <laughs> a word that this person's saying. So I think that you can go way too far on that side because the whole point to live and to write and to exist is to, to impact people, right? No matter how secluded the writer is and no matter how much he, want, he or she wants to be alone, they still want to reach people and they still want to leave their thumbprint on the world. But at the same time, I see a lot of people that are just doing everything in their power to kind of scoop up the masses and they don't even care about the integrity necessarily of, of the message that they're offering. That's a good point, especially in this day and age where we have so much at our fingertips on our phones and, you know, everyone can quote unquote, make a quick million with like their online business or like sell a book and it's done and you can like retire like that whole like American dream, this new American dream, you know, and maybe that's the, the fuel behind why these things are actually happening is because it's just a really quick, easy way get out there versus writing something that's very in depth requires maybe a deeper level of knowledge in terms of, you know, the context of the language used or the actual concept itself that might not apply to the masses. You know, I, I, I think, I think, I think you're right about that. And um, it's something I, I, I kind of struggle with a lot myself. Like I'm actually not on Twitter. But I know that Twitter is the place where you can get all the cool zingers and all the <laughs> um, like exciting things are going on there in terms of these like rapid fire arguments. And I, I realize, you know, to, to promote the podcast or to promote other stuff that I want to do, that that might be a platform. But then I say to myself, in order, like, does the means justify the ends, basically? So if I engage in these like little fast zingers and these really like cool rapid fire arguments in that 
process? Am I causing more damage than I wanted to help? Because I think there, there might be a part of me that sells like what I'm trying to do in order to get ahead. And that might just defeat the purpose of whatever it is I was trying to do in the first place. Social media is always a tough thing to consider because it is just such a monster and it's up there with Google searches. Like that's how we obtain a lot of information. Like if I need to know how to like do my makeup, I go on Pinterest and Google, like do a basically a search on there. I mean, same thing with Twitter. You can look up a hashtag like podcast or self-help and results will come up. I, I guess a good question is, are you, is the audience, the people who are on there, are the, is that the audience you want to attract? So that's another thing is, are those readers that are on there actually looking for the gold that you're providing? Or are they just looking for those funny memes and the things that aren't really, they're just things to kill time and just, you know, disengage you from the really important things in your life? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that we have to, we have to be mindful of our time and we have to be mindful of who we're spending that time with because there's a lot of things. Like I, I, for a very long time had a huge YouTube addiction and <laughs> I would, I would go down some pretty darn crazy spirals. And then after three hours, I was like, okay, did I learn something? Maybe, but most likely not. It was probably stuff I already knew, or it was probably some exciting sensationalist spin on something. And it didn't really get me anywhere. You know, like I, I definitely killed three hours, but now when I consume things, I'm always like, okay, where is this taking me? Where is this information? How am I going to use this information down the line? I want to uh, shift focus a little bit. And one thing that I'm really admiring, Gabby, is that me and you are having a very long conversation and we're on topic. I'm starting to find that people of the younger generation are sort of like topic jumping a lot quicker. Even when you're verbally talking to them, they don't seem to have the attention span to like <laughs> talk about a single issue for a very long sustained amount of time. And, and I'm wondering if, is this an, a generational thing or are there just always people that can talk about things for long periods of time? Like, well, are you, are you feeling that with uh, the gener generation Z folk? I think so. And just, their generation, I think it's, we're all becoming, you know, we're all changing because of the way that they're, we're getting information. And frankly, the entertainment in our life is changing. Um, everything is so quick. And it, because of that, it doesn't require us to really use that mental process to think out long conversations. And like, one thing that I learned when I was younger was there was a time where I would listen just to make a reply versus listening to actually like thoughtfully think it through and then answer not with what I wanted to say, but what was actually building on the conversation. So I think what's also happening is maybe the younger generations are focusing more inward on themselves as they build their social media presence, as they focus on, you know, all these different things. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I have a younger brother and he luckily has a really great, um, you know, he's able to hold a conversation, make eye contact and all that. But it's, it's tough. And you know, it's not something that's taught in school either, which is hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I, I just worry about my, I worry about like the upcoming generation and it, it could be very dangerous if somebody just tells them something and they just accept that as being true. 
a part of the reason I started the podcast is I believe that in order to find truth, you can't just do it with one sentence or you can't just do it with a meme or you can't just do it like immediately, like boom, here's the truth, flash. <laughs> like I feel that, I, I feel like the truth is something that you kind of have to dig for. Like it's like, like, like a miner in a cave. You have to keep digging. And the only way you can do that is you could do it by yourself, but it's really nice to be able to do it with, with, with someone else. And, and the mm -hmm. way you do that with somebody else is through a long sustained conversation. And I, I'm growing fearful that the uh, younger generation or, or people who are, even, even the older generation that's really being sucked in by the social media stuff, aren't going to be able to do that. Yeah. And I think also to, when you had said that, I immediately thought of books as being, you know, the way that people can learn kind of how to have that ebb and flow in conversation, but also, right, anyone can post something on Twitter, anyone can post anything on any platform and again, if someone maybe is not doing their due diligence to find out if that feels good to them and feels true to them, they may pertain to this truth. But if someone's publishing a book, you know, the likelihood of them publishing something that's very, very untrue, or at least has not been combed through by another person sure. um, is very unlikely. So, I mean, a giant, you know, publishing house is not going to, you know, publish something that they find is untrue. Or if it is like, there are some weaves of fiction in there, it's an opinion piece, right? That's, that's what an opinion is. If someone has a biased view against something and they have X facts and they're proving it that way. And then there's the other side. But when you have a book that's physically been printed, that has, you know, copywriters have to come in, legal people have to come in. No one's going to invest that much time into like garbage, so to speak. Yes. Yes. I, I love, that's so true that we have that when you write a book, you have this team of people that are making sure that your facts are in order and that you're not basically just spewing off things that are fundamentally untrue. I want to get your opinion on this, Gabby. I've talked to people before who have said that when they read a book, it forces them to create a mental image of what's happening in their mind. So if you're reading a romance novel, you have to, there might be, there might be uh, words that describe what the protagonist looks like, but ultimately it's up to you to create that mental image. And from what I've heard, this process of creating a mental image of what a person looks like, how that scene unfolded, actually forces you to really engage and think out all the details in your head of like, oh, wait a minute, she was standing at the lighthouse, but then how did she get from the lighthouse to the boat over there? And then you have to, you actually have to do all of that hard work and all of that thinking. And that kind of enhances your critical thinking because you have to create these mental images of your mind of how people are wandering around and negotiating spaces and how things were said. Do you put any stock into that? Honestly, I am like a little shocked that you had mentioned this because it's something that I didn't really register as like critical thinking. Whenever I read a book, I associate it with pleasure, not any form of like, I'm not reading a textbook every day. That's just yeah, that's that not what's happening. So like for me, I'm thinking, I'm like, oh my God, like the boy meets the girl and they like kiss and fall in love and it's wonderful. Like I'm not thinking that it's a really serious brain power that's going on. It's just, it's not, it doesn't occur to me, but when you put it like that, it does make sense that every time you read, you're working your brain, you know, uh, you're even developing on your creativity because you have to formulate these ideas on people and how they even how their voice sounds, you know, like when you read a book to a kid, you always like, and the mouse did blah, blah, blah. And then you like talk about, you know, the mom or whoever has a much maybe deeper voice. So the dad sounds like this, or I think there's a level of 
like creativity that does come with when you read aloud to others, but also I, now that you mention that when you read to yourself. Yeah, I mean, even if you're reading like a, a paperback uh, romance novel, you're also getting into the psychology of these people a lot more deeper. Like when you're watching a movie, you don't know what's going through their head as much. It's just kind of like action. So you just take everything at face value. Like, okay, uh, the boy got kidnapped and then the father went and chased him. And you just accept whatever is in unfolding on the screen as just action. Whereas with a book, I think the author has put a little bit more time in getting into their head. And then you are mm -hmm. also entering these people's head a lot more and being like, well, what's his motivation for doing that? Or, or why did the wizard tell the boy that instead of this, you know, like you, even, even if it's a fairy tale or whatever, you're still putting in that mental work. Yeah. And you actually get to experience the emotions of the character as if you're living the, you know, the, the actual story itself, which is something that you cannot ever compare to a movie, no matter how good yes. of it is. It's just, it's never going to be the same. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And you, you, you yourself could become the protagonist through a book. Because if you have a, a very loose idea of what that person looks like, you could sort of throw yourself in that situation. And now you're negotiating that space. But when you see <laughs> Brad Pitt or something negotiating that space, you're already viewing it from a third person. Whereas with a book, you can kind of play like a little imagination game and you, you're the character kind of negotiating what's going on. I mean, don't we all kind of do that? I'm like, I read certain <laughs> books like, you know, the Hunger Games. They're like, I could be that person. Like, give me the bow and arrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, we, 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 all, we all try and make our fantasies uh, come true. Yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's awesome. And speaking of movies, um, do you think that, you know, we have this, this huge influx now of novels that are being made, and then they're, they're rushing to the door to make a movie? based upon them. And do you think there's a lot of people that are like, eh, I'm not going to read the book. I'll just watch the movie. And, and how, how do you think that's changing the way that, that we're interacting with new media? Right. Entertainment is such like a popular thing right now. We have all these streaming services that, you know, they're constantly adding in new shows and things like that, which is obviously that, you know, bringing people so they're not actually reading in the first place. But I have to say, well, for one, most books and like shows and all like most movies and shows, I'm sorry, are from books. So, yeah, right. you know, that wouldn't have happened in the first place if it wasn't for the author. What I found too, just because like the people I work with, a lot of them read is that um, some of the movies that come out, no one's going to just go and, you know, watch a movie unless there's that specific person who's like, Oh my God, I recognize this title. Like I need to see this movie. It, right. It's going to, you know, I have to see what, you know, the interpretation of it. I want to know who's playing the character. Like you get so invested in it. And I think that's what actually starts the whole, you know, snowball effect of like the movie building up and building up and building up. And I think that's kind of what's happened to the Harry Potter series. I mean, the first book came out when I was, I think, in second grade. And, it, you know, it was just a small little book, nothing too crazy. And then over the years now, I mean, it's, it's a whole thing where like, I mean, they play Quidditch on some campuses and they have a whole amusement park and it's, it's snowballed into this massive, massive thing and people love it. I mean, there are people who haven't even read the book and just watched the movie and love it, but that wouldn't, all of that wouldn't have happened if the book wasn't there. And even, you know, the same thing goes for a lot of other books that are even, um, you know, came out about a year ago and either they, the movie's in the process of being made now or it's coming out next year. And it's just, it's, they're constantly churning out movies based on books and they're 
doing it much, much quicker than they would before. You know, it's funny. I, I want to talk actually about um, like Harry Potter versus Hunger Games in a way, because I also, also remember when the Harry Potter books were coming out and the books were just selling on their own for a very long time. Like people were very excited about those books long before the movies even came out. And then when the movies came out, you were kind of already attracting the loyal flies that had already read the book. And now they wanted to see their favorite characters come to life on the big screen. Whereas I think something like the hunger games, which came out, I want to say like what, 10, 15 years later, I think that those books didn't get as much of a cult following because people went straight to the movies and then, and then they, they, they knew the books existed, but they were like, Oh, okay. Book was really popular. But then like a year later, the movie came out the same thing with um, game of Thrones, for example, like we all know that uh, the books have been around, but because the, the HBO series just came about so quickly, a lot of people, and I'm actually guilty of myself, of this myself, I never read any of the Game of Thrones books, but I just watched the whole series. And now once I watch the whole series, do I really want to reread the whole, the whole story <laughs> arc of what I know happens? No, I thought about this before, because it is really interesting that you go from Harry Potter, where I, if I, if I remember correctly, I remember people literally camped outside bookstores, like, the night before the release of the book just to get the first copy like that i don't even think that happens anymore maybe it happens for video games but like yes, for video definitely games. not <laughs> definitely not books but i think part of it is that jk rowling did a wonderful job of creating something that no one had seen before and that's part of the magic in all of it is that there's this wizard wizarding world all these spells and like it's almost like the whole idea of avatar that movie it just kind of like blew people's minds and they're like oh my god like Imagine if this was reality and we didn't have to live in the current world we live in and we could be there instead. I think it's just people are able to, you know, detach from their current lives and jump into a com literally a completely different world um, is really exciting. And now because it's become so mainstream, like, you know, Game of Thrones, like I have not watched it, but my friends have and they say nothing but good things about it. It's not really new in the terms of like, you know, dragons kind of are, the concept of dragons have already been around, you know, sword fighting, like, and I know that sounds like, not like kind of mean, like, I'm not trying to discredit Game of Thrones, because it's a wonderful show. But if it was done, maybe 10 years ago, maybe it would have had a completely different uh, reaction, because people would have been reading those really, really difficult books. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to pick up the Game of Thrones book, but like, it's so big, and <laughs> hurting the language in it, 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 it actually requires like, I had tried to read it and I actually ended up putting it down because the language is so at such a higher level that I actually, it required me to do more work focusing on the actual me interpreting the book than actually blowing through it that I would for a normal like sixth grade reading level book. No, I, that's, the, you know, that's actually a point I never thought of because on one hand, these movies make content accessible to people who would otherwise find it inaccessible. So for, 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 uh, for someone who loves the story of Game of Thrones, but they don't have the the time or they don't have like, they don't want to put in the cognitive work to read this really dense 900 page book, you now get to enjoy the story of Game of Thrones. Whereas if there had been no um, film or, or television show adaptation, that content would just be completely inaccessible to you. So that's a really good point, Gabby. Yeah.
So, and also, I mean, same thing with the Conger games, like that was at the reading level for it was, I mean, people, I had middle schoolers in my class reading it and that was, you know, easily accessible for them. It was available in their library. So there was that. And that was in the age of also eBooks, which was really helpful. But the concept of a dystopian world, maybe beforehand was already introduced. And so because of that, the hype or the leading up to it, the buildup was not as significant as you know, these other movies or books. So, you know, it's, it's all debatable, but it's something to consider. Yeah. You know, I, I remember that this is something else I want to touch upon is that when I was a kid, you know, you had these like great books such as uh, let's say Oliver Twist, right? Now Oliver Twist is actually written for an adult. It's a very tough book to get through. It's, it's written in like uh, 19th century Victorian English, but then there's always like the children's version of that book. Like there'll always be like a kid's version. And I'm wondering as adults, if that would perhaps be a smart idea where we have like the incredibly complicated, dense version of the book, but then there's like a version of the book that's for people who just don't have the time to read the incredibly dense version, or maybe, you know, they're just learning English and it's very difficult for them to, to, to kind of understand like this, this, these like thousands of new vocabulary words that they're not hearing on a regular basis. Now this is a lot of work because it would require Mm -hmm. the author to write like two versions of their book (laughs) and so forth. But I'm wondering if like that might be like some kind of partial solution to this. In some ways, it seems like that would be really nice to have. Also, just from the from the place of like where we're progressing in humanity, like we are advancing in a lot of ways. But I feel that in some ways, maybe we're not being frank. I think for some of us, like we're becoming a little bit dumber because we're not using these higher, more complex conversations, these more, uh, you know, better language, better tools. Like it just if you can just go on your phone and 150 characters type something out using slang, like, and you're using in your daily life, we're maybe in a different place than someone who was growing up in the ninth, you know, the early 1900s, you know, it's just a completely different, you're learning different things. So I think it would be nice just in terms of giving us the, the edge, but I don't know if it would be like feasible. You know, the, the, the thing is, is that like a, a, a lot of people will, will like push back and say, well, why use these overly complicated words, right? That they'll mm-hmm. be like, come on, like you're just trying to sound smart and pretentious mm-hmm. and just like like show how great you are. But I would make the argument that the more words you have at your disposal, the more the more you can speak about issues in a very nuanced way, you know, like it's one thing to call somebody, oh, you're, you're a giant, you know, scaredy cat or something, but then you might use, well, you know, you were rather timid in that situation. Whereas like, you're like, if you called someone like you're, you're a coward, then that, that kind of reflects their entire personality. Like you are a coward in everything that you do. Whereas if you have more words and you have more language at your disposal, you can kind of differentiate between, well, you know, you were very brazen in that moment, but then I noticed, uh, you know, a few days later, you you kind of were a little timid. So I, I think that the more language we have, the more nuance and the more exception that we can apply to situations. And I think it wouldn't be, like it wouldn't be so confrontational between us as humans. Like we wouldn't be throwing rocks at one another if we had better ways of communicating. That's a good point. And I didn't consider that when thinking about the broader language we use. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, as I've gotten older, I am constantly, you know, being introduced to words that I've never even heard of. 
um, which requires me to then right, I look it up online or I'll ask someone about it. And it's just another tool in my tool belt. And yeah. so especially, so I'm in marketing now and my job is to craft the perfect words to sell whatever it is we're selling. So, you know, maybe not so much in a book, you're not trying to sell every single word, but in a sense, maybe in your day-to-day conversation, you are, or the way that you're trying to address something with someone, you know, if you can use a specific word in a specific way, it'll completely change the dialogue and yeah. the way that people like their attitudes and all of that. Yeah. You know, I don't believe that you should just throw in a big word unnecessarily. Like there's no reason to use the word astronomical when you could use the word big or, you know, like, Oh my God, you're wearing some astronomical pants over there. You know, it, it just, <laughs> it, it's just like, uh, you know, it, 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 it's just, that's a waste of time and that's just going to cause more headache and, and more confusion. But I think that, we have sort of these like transitional words that, that kind of describe a state that's not fully one way. Maybe, maybe for example, instead of saying I'm angry at you, I'm a little peeved at you, or I'm a little um, taken aback or, or, or some kind of like nuanced word that kind of explains that like, I am not fully this, this, this other emotion. I'm sort of in the middle. And I think if we have these words that kind of convey meaning in the middle, it allows for more dialogue to happen. And it also, you know, like you don't want to be like, I, you don't want to use these extreme words for small things in your life. If you have like intermediary words, then you can kind of talk with people and not piss them off right away problem I think maybe with this is that with internet trolls like maybe that's their like their life's mission is they're trying to piss you off so they're not you know they're not really going to question using those more complex specific words but I I do see your point and like I can see in life where it would be really really helpful to have that like when having you know have those conversations at work when they're giving you constructive criticism I, I think we need to, as a society we need to be a lot more mindful of the words that we use and that, especially in the day and age, there's a lot more suicides and bullying. And especially as a teacher, I saw a lot of those negative, you know, interactions happening. And so, you know, it can go back to saying maybe they need to work on their language, but maybe it's also stems back to reading because, you know, maybe there's something in a book that they can learn to help them process those emotions they're feeling or how to, again, maybe use better language. But sometimes it's just reading a story that kind of clicks something in your head and then immediately you find a gem that brings your life more meaning or brings something that you needed to learn at that specific moment so that you can become a better person. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the final point that I want to touch upon is I think books give us an incredible level of empathy. I've always found reading a book, I'm able to say, whoa, I thought I was the only one struggling with that internal issue, but it looks like somebody else a hundred years ago is also struggling with that same internal issue. And I think, I think once we, um, like I said earlier, once we have that exposure to someone else's mind, we start to realize that that person's mind, that author's mind is very similar to my own mind. And if that person thinks that way, and I think this way, then maybe we're not all that much different. Yeah. And that's, something I think I'm recognizing more and more as I get older. And I think it's also with the changing times of the type of genres and the types of content that's coming out in books, because some of the fiction that I read, yeah, it's still fiction, but that doesn't mean that those characters and the stories aren't derived from something that's very real. 
um, we're becoming more aware of the struggles that we all have and that we don't have to put on a facade and you know we all have these emotions that we go through and um, it's it's really nice to be reading this stuff in book books and realize that you're not alone yes yes absolutely i think i think books can um show us that you know we're all living in a community with one another and that chances are that hardship or that argument that you've had somebody else has had and they could teach you a thing or two from it yeah agreed gabby thank you so much for being on the show today yeah it was a pleasure thanks for having me this concludes the 23rd episode of the truth island podcast i'm aaron azarod <laughs>